Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody here today. Good to see the kids and uh, adults alike. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Job chapter 32. Uh, that's where we're going to be at this morning. As you're turning there, a few weeks ago, um, we kind of presented uh, a church uh, vision uh, of what that we thought uh, was kind of the next phase of what God wanted us to do as a church. And on Wednesday night, uh, we voted on that proposal. The proposal is that on Sunday nights to go to Conway, Missouri, to the Calvary Free Will Baptist Church that is closed and has been closed since March. Uh, and sometime this fall, we haven't set a for sure date yet, but this fall we will begin having Sunday night worship services uh, in Conway. And so the church voted nearly unanimously on Wednesday night to make, the, to make that second location, second service. And so you be praying for that. Uh, be praying uh, whether or not God would have you to be a part of that. It's going to be a uh, church effort. Uh, the mission board is partnering with us on that, and so they've, uh, we're going to be down there rent-free for about six months uh, at the minimum to go down and be able to start a, uh, basically a second location of First Church uh, down in Conway, um, and, and I'm pretty excited about it. I got even more excited about it when one of the families shared with us that Friday night they were at the ball field and they had ball games going on. And this particular lady ran into somebody that she went to high school with. And so they go to high school and they come, they come back and, um, and they ran into each other just at, at the ball fields. And so she was talking to her and, you know, just want to know how life was going. And she said, well, we're living in Conway. And so the radar goes up and, uh, and just kind of chit-chatting. And they're like, yeah, but it's, you know, it's, we're just kind of, we want to go to church in Conway. Just kind of one of those deals where we've got some family there, but it's really not for us. And so our church family said, well, hey, we just happened to be starting, uh, we're going to be starting a church in Conway, and said the woman's face just lit up, and, uh, and, and said, well, you let us know when that's going to happen, and so um, I'm excited about it. You be in prayer for that. Be in prayer for that community. Um, it's, it's kind of a, you know, stepping out on faith is never without risk, uh, and, and risk is just an inerrant quality of faith. And so, um, you know, for us, I, I wish why we knew for certain how it was going to turn out, but we feel that this is the direction God's calling us to go. And so we're going to be faithful to do that. Um, and so you be praying about uh, the Conway work. So we'll announce more about that coming up. Probably in the next couple of weeks, we'll begin having just some prayer time down there on Sunday evenings about the time we'll have service. That way they can get used to cars uh, being in the, the, the neighborhood. Uh, we're going to start kind of getting some core team development going on where we get some people from Conway that are interested in the work and start having some meetings with them. So pretty exciting, pretty exciting times for our church. But we're glad that you're here with us this morning. And we're going to be in the book of Job. If you've not been with us, we've been studying the book of Job for the better part of the year. Uh, Job has been a good book. It's about a man named Job. Job, in the beginning of the book, we're told is an upright, godly man. And through a series of events and God allowing these things to happen, he loses uh, everything. And so as we have seen for the vast majority of the, of the, the, the book, uh, we see Job's three friends taking turns um, 
I guess verbally, um, I, well, I don't know a verbal assault, but they, they're not very kind to him. Their whole reason for coming, we learn in chapter two, is to comfort Job, so show him sympathy. Uh, they have done very little of that. Uh, in fact, it's been nothing but accusation, guilt, shame. Job, surely you've done something wrong to deserve what God has done to you or allowed to happen to you. And Job, through the whole book, continues to maintain his integrity. Well, finally, we looked at this a, a couple weeks ago, Job's friends have quit talking. After 30 chapters, Job's friends have finally quit talking, and he finally has time to think. And so he kind of recommits himself to the things that matter. He thinks about the Lord and all that God has done in his life, and he looks at his past, and he looks at kind of his present troubles, and he looks to the future. And today, we're going to see another friend, and I, that we're not told that this friend, because of his age, was just kind of behind the scenes, taking in the whole thing that was going on. We don't know if he was there the whole time, or he comes in late. But he's got this another friend named Elihu, who's a young guy, and he comes onto the scene, and he, he, and he decides now's a good time to literally tell Job everything he knows. And so for like six chapters, Elihu gives Job everything. Now, we're, we're going to cover all that. We're not going to go verse by verse through that. We're going to kind of hit the highlights of what Elihu says because Elihu does say some, some good things um, and some things that are, are worth us listening to. But he starts talking and he doesn't stop and he gives Elihu everything that he's got. So let's bow and let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we will dive right into the text. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning uh, for this church. Lord, I thank you for uh, the vision that you gave the, the people who planted this one, that it would come and it would be here. And Lord, we thank you for uh, its continued fruitfulness over the years that has enabled us to come and, and be able to, 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 to reap what was sown uh, so faithfully by others. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity for us to be here today. We thank you for what you're doing in this church. We thank you for what you're going to do in this church. And Lord, I thank you this morning for each and every person uh, that is here with us today. And Father, we ask that as we uh, break open your word, we know that your word is truth. And God, it has been pinned by you and, and every word of it uh, reflects back on you. And so Father, we pray that as we study this, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide through the text. I pray, Lord, that you would just open our hearts to receive what you would have for us. And Father, I know uh, that, that there are times when distractions pop up, that our minds begin to float elsewhere, and we think, and our stomachs begin to growl. But God, I pray today that you would just help us to, to focus on your word and what, in, the, in the words that it says, um, God, then you would help us to apply them to our lives. We're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for the truth that it's found, that's found in its pages. We're thankful that uh, it communicates to us about the loving God who came and gave his son uh, to die on a cross for our sins, that, that, we wouldn't, uh, that, that we would be able to have hope and a future. And God, we're so thankful for that message this morning, and we just pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. God, I pray for hearts that are burdened this morning, Lord, that, that these burdens would be lifted, God, that you would just allow them to come and be able to worship you in spirit and truth this morning, and God, that we would be reminded that you are good and that you are gracious. And Father, we just ask your blessings on our time here this morning, for it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. In Job chapter 32, um, and I mentioned this earlier, we're not going to look at every single verse uh, and every word that Elihu tells Job, but we are going to break it down a bit so we can understand what's, what's being said. Now, Elihu basically in one long 
sermon, I guess we could call this, gives Job four different speeches. We find the the first speech uh, happens in chapters 22 and 23. The second one's recorded in chapter 34, his third one in 35, and his his final fourth sermon at uh, message uh, speech is recorded in chapters 36 and, and 37. And during his time talking, Elihu communicates two points that we need to understand. And so the first one is this, that God disciplines a person to turn him from the error of his way. So that if we get off track, God is essentially going to discipline us with the, with the desire to get us back on the right track. And that, 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 that truth is, is timeless, uh, that, that, that God never wastes tests that if we are off track, he is going to discipline us to bring us back on track. And when God bears down, his goal is to turn the wayward back to himself. Now, that's not the case with Job as we have already spent time understanding. Job's sin has not caused Job's suffering, not in this particular case. But for some of us, that may be the truth, that we have sinned, we have gone astray, so God disciplines us with the intention and the desire, with the goal of steering us back into the right way, the same way that we would do our children. And so God disciplines a person to turn him or her from the error of their way. But the second truth that Elihu communicates to us is that God governs justly. Now, that word justly essentially means fair, that there's no favoritism, there's no higher regard for one group and lower regard for another. I like these, so I'm going to judge them one way. I don't care much for these, I'm going to judge them another. He is perfectly just. He is perfectly fair. And, and that's another reliable fact. And, and, and God is sovereign. And so he is not only good all the time, but he is also in control all of the time. Uh, and it's worth reminding us that God's never shocked or surprised. Our, our lives may feel at times out of control for us, but at no time is our life ever out of control for God. Uh, God never feels, but he never feels obligated to explain himself to us, though I wish, like many of you, that he would explain uh, more to us. But even if he did, we wouldn't understand it. Because as we are told in the scriptures, his ways are deep and his plans are profound. But it's an important point to remember that God is sovereign, that he's always in control. So we have Job and his three friends. And as we get through the entirety of this, chapters 32 through 37, Job nor his three friends, none of them ever answer. Now, there's a reason for that. I don't know that Elihu ever takes a breath long enough for anybody to respond to him. But he does, nonetheless, but nonetheless, none of his friends uh, respond at any time. There's no, no dialogue between them. And up front, Elihu admits that he's angry. Matter of fact, if you go, if you go to, to uh, Job 32, let's begin reading in verse 1, and you tell me if you can determine whether or not Elihu is angry. So these three men cease to answer Job, and he's, of course, referring to uh, Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz. Uh, or ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Verse 2, Then Elihu, the son of the guy, that guy, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. Okay, number one. Let's keep reading. He burned with anger, number two, at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Verse 3, he burned with anger. Right, so you're picking up, <laughs> you're picking up that Elihu was an angry guy. 
He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. Verse four, now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. So he was respectful of those of, of, that were more aged than him. And so he waited for his turn to speak. And verse five, when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouths of these three men, he burned with what? Anger. Elihu's angry. Now, I'm gonna just go out on a limb here. Let me ask this question, or I may be the only one. Anybody ever said something in anger? You, anger, you be angry and you talk, right? Am I the only one? What generally happens when we're angry and start talking? Well, if, I'm not saying you are, but if you are anything like me, you do one of two things or both of them. You say too much and say, you say things you wish you wouldn't have said, or you say more than you wish you would have said, right? So you either say things you're going to later regret or you say things that you, or you, you say too much, like you get on a roll, like Elihu does here, and you just talk, and you say too much. Now, that's true for a lot of us. We get angry, we talk, and we say too much, we say things we wish we wouldn't have said, and we wish we could go back and, and, and erase those things, but we can't. But I've also noticed in moments that I'm angry, now this isn't justification, it's just reality, we say too much. We say things we wish we wouldn't have said, but also in those angry diatribes that we have, we often say things that are true, right? Sometimes we beat around the bush and we won't really come out and say it, but in those moments of anger, there are times where truth, it reveals itself. And so what we've got to do is we've got to remember that as we look through what Elihu says, Elihu suffers from the same thing. He says too much. Like he speaks for six chapters and never takes a breath. He talks too much. And it's like most times, he gets started off really good, and in the boring, it gets in the middle, it gets really boring, and then at the end, he wraps it up, and you just you're, you find yourself wishing that that Elihu would just get to the point, bro. Like you've talked for a long time and not said a whole lot of anything, and then finally get to the end, you're like, finally, right? He says what needs to be said. And so as we look at this text, we're going we're gonna to be reminded of those things, but he also says things that need to be said. As a matter of fact, skip down to chapter two or chapter 32, verse 6. He says, And Elihu, the son of that guy, answered and said, I am young in years and you are aged, therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. So he's young, he's younger than the rest of the guys that these other three friends, Elihu, or Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, and so he waits to speak. And even now he says, I'm, I'm timid. I'm a little bit uh, afraid to say anything. But he says in verse seven, I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in man, the breath of the almighty that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise nor the aged who understand what is right. Now, Let's look at what he says here. Elihu's respectful again of those older, but he states an observation that just because a person's old doesn't mean that they are necessarily wise, that wisdom does not come solely by the number of years a person has lived. And he's right. An age of a person doesn't equate with their level of wisdom. A person can be old and, and, and foolish. A person can be young and foolish. A person can be old and wise. A person can be young and wise. And if there's one frustrating thing about Elihu in these six chapters, it's that one minute he can be wise and the next minute he can sound like an idiot. 
There's one minute that he can be very insightful, and then the next moment, you just, you're just find yourself just kind of mindlessly reading through the words because he's just droning on about something. And Elihu admits himself in, in verse 18 of chapter 32, he says, for I'm full of words. And so he's saying, I'm, I've, <laughs> there's a lot here. He's also full of himself, and he's younger, and he's a little bit rash, and being angry, he talks too much. And he also makes some mistakes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, he begins strong, and he finishes strong, but in the middle, it just kind of goes on and on. So he, t- he takes too long to get started. You begin reading uh, these f- six chapters, and, and you find yourself saying, Elihu, would you just get to the point, man? Say what needs to be said. You ever get that way when someone's like talking to you? Like you're in an argument and they just keep talking and you're just like, would you just get to the point? Like I just, let's just cut all the niceties, just say what needs to be said. And that's what happens here with Elihu. His second mistake is that there's an arrogance about him, that there's a pride that seems to be oozing between the lines. And there's no response from anyone because Elihu really doesn't leave room for any. Like, you're like, you, you could just hear him talking and someone being like, yeah, but, and he, and he just keeps going on. Yeah, but, but, but he just keeps going. So he, there's this, there's this pride. And, and so he, he comes across as being preachy. You know what I mean? Like, you ever had someone just feel like they're just talking, like they're, they're, you're on the same level, but they're like, they're talking, they're talking down to you. And so there's a time to be preachy. But there's also a time to not be. And typically the time to not be preachy is when you're having a one-on-one or it's a small group of people, just to just be conscious that we're not coming across with being, you know, with being a little preachy. Um, the, the third thing, the third mistake he makes is that he states a lot of what Job already knew. Like there's no new information in these, in these chapters. Matter of fact, you could go back and you spend some time and then what you'll find is he really says a lot of what the other three friends have already said previously. And then his fourth mistake is he never acknowledges that he doesn't know for sure. Instead, he comes across as having all the answers. Instead of saying something along the lines like, you know, I really don't know all that I should know about this, but, and, and kind of giving like there's some room for error here, Job, but instead he just proclaims that what he kind of deems to be fact. So let's take a closer look at these four speeches. And again, we're not going to look at them in depth. Matter of fact, we're just going to look at a few verses from each chapter. But if you had to sum up the first speech, uh, you would sum it up like this. God has not been silent, but his message is not as you had expected. So he's almost reassuring Job that that though Job has felt like God has been silent for a long time, that he's really not been, but his message hasn't been what Job has wanted. And he begins by con- kind of confronting Job in, chapter, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter uh, 33. And so he says, um, why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. And he says, and he gives a couple of those ways. In a dream, in a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds and he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man to keep his, to keep, and it, to, he keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing 
uh, by the sword. And so Elihu gives Job a couple of ways that, that, that God speaks. Now in the Old Testament, this is not uh, anything new that he says, you know, we, he speaks in, in a dream or a vision. And we see that. We see uh, Jacob when he's, uh, he sees the, the Jacob's ladder in, 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 uh, earlier in the, in the Old Testament records. And so we see times when God speaks. We think of Samuel. When, when Samuel would be asleep and he would hear someone calling his name, and he, or, or yeah, Sam, and, but he thought it was someone else and it was, it was really God asking him or talking to him. And so there are times when we see this happen um, in, in, in God's word, but also he can speak to us when we are sick. He, you know, when he says he keeps, uh, when man in verse 19 of chapter 33, man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones. And so he said, there may be times when God uses sickness to communicate his message. But how would Job get God's message? We'll skip down to verse 23. If there be for him an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand, to declare to man what is right for him, and he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit, I have found a ransom. Then man, or let his flesh become flesh with youth and let him return to the days of his youthful vigor. Then man prays to God and he accepts him. He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. Now let's think about what he says. This, this mediator, an angel, a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him. Could it be that in these days, these, these days of Job, when God communicated through dreams and visions, when God spoke directly to individuals in a supernatural way, that there was a mediating angel? Apparently so. Now, I have read elsewhere, and it's, an interesting, it's interesting to think about. John 1.1, if you've heard our kids recite that verse, it was a memory verse for our kindergartners for the CTS, the Christian Training Service, and the competition they competed in. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, right? He is the Word. That's what Jesus is referred to as the Word. I wonder who that mediating angel might, have, might be. Could it be Jesus, the Word, making his presence known even in these visions and these communications that happen in the Old Testament? I don't know, possibly, but we do know that there's this mediating angel. And, and God, you know, today, how does God speak to us? Well, he speaks to us through his word, so we have that, but he also speaks to us, to us through the Holy Spirit. So we don't necessarily have a lot of the dreams and visions. When we use the word vision in this church, it more speaks less of God, you know, I fell into a sleep and he you know, I have a dream, and that's what, it's not what I'm, it, it's more the, the, the leadings of the heart, the prompting of the heart, where the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing. But here, you know, it was kind of, he's referring to this vision thing. And so in Job's era, before the Bible was complete and Jesus had come, God frequently spoke in dreams and vision. And so Elihu's telling Job, listen, Job, God's speaking to you, man. Are you hearing what he has to say? God may seem and feel invisible and uninvolved, but he is at work. And so he reaffirms that to Job. Then in his second speech, Elihu begins by addressing Job and his three friends and then moves to addressing just Job himself. But because Elihu mentions so much of what's already been said, we'll cut to the chase. Look at chapter 34, verse 31. He says, For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment? 
I will not offend anymore. Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do it no more. Will he then make a repayment to suit you because you reject it? For you must choose and not I, therefore declare what you know. Verse 34, men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge, his words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. That's the same thing his three friends have already said. That Job's guilty of something. He's just not willing to admit it. And so there we kind of have Elihu, I guess in a sense, going for the jugular. And then the third speech. Elihu claims Job has impure motives and that's the reason for God's silence. Look at chapter 35, verse 12. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. So he's saying, listen, there's some, Job, there's some sin there, Job, some impure motives. God's not answering you. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and that you are waiting for him. And now, because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression. Job opens his mouth in empty talk and multiplies words without knowledge. And so again, that impure motive, and, and that's the reason for God's silence. And then his fourth speech, and here might be the best one. And I don't mean that facetiously, I mean genuinely. He gets started good, and then he ends strong. And Elihu here kind of gets back on target, and he reveals some, some reliable truth, and he really covers four important bases. And these bases are important for Job, and they are also important for us, and they're good reminders for us. Number one was this, God protectively, God protectively watches over the righteous. Now, it may be hard, if, you, if you're familiar with the story of Job, it may be hard for us to say, well, how does God protectively over, over, watch over the righteous? And we see all this destruction has happened to Job. Well, God has a greater purpose in that. But I will remind you, it was God who set the, the parameters around what Satan could do to Job. He said, all these things are fair game, but Satan, you cannot and will not touch his life. And so even there, we see that, that God is, is being Job's protector, and he watches over the righteous. The second thing is if the righteous commit a transgression, a sin, he lets them know they've done wrong. Now, how does that happen in the life of us? Well, we would call it conviction, that, that the Holy Spirit communicating with us that we have done something that's not right. Now, it could be that we have done something we shouldn't have, or we did not do something we should have. So that you got those two different things there. But something speaks inside of us, says, listen, you've done something wrong. Or we read God's word and we discover that we've been doing something in error. And so there's a couple of ways that he, he, that he will, uh, that when we commit a transgression, he'll let them know we've done wrong. Now, what do we do in the case that we've done something wrong? Well, the next truth that Elihu tells us is that if we respond to the rod of discipline, will be restored. That, that his entire goal in this is, to, is the restoration of his people. And so if we respond to the rod of discipline, we repent, then we're restored. But if, then the fourth truth, if we persist, then surely we will suffer the consequences. And those are all 
good truths for us to remember that God protects, uh, protectively watches over the righteous, that if the righteous commit a sin, he lets them know they've done wrong. His desire is that we would respond to his rod of discipline and that we would be restored, and that if we persist, then we will surely suffer the consequences. And if he'd have said all this, if Elihu would have said all this at the beginning, it would have saved us five chapters, five chapters of reading an overview But thankfully, Elihu finally gets it right. And after that summary, Elihu looks up and he begins to give full attention to the one who needs the attention and deserves the attention, and that's God. If you look at all of chapter 36 and 37, it all tells us an important truth. I don't know what the little subtitle of your chapter beginning in verse 36 is, but mine says Elihu extols God's greatness, and that's exactly what he does. He says it is all about God. Every bit of it. The final speech really provides a wonderful segue into the moment when God finally breaks his silence and speaks to Job, which we're going to look at next week. So all this, all these 37 chapters building up to when God finally speaks to Job. But Elihu's words help Job grasp a fairly good understanding of the living God. And look how he starts in, in the beginning of, of chapter 37. If you look at verse 1, he says, At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go, and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After, after it his voice roars, he thunders with a majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings which his, uh, when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice, and he does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man that all men whom he made may know it. And so we begin to see that this, this idea of who God is, and, and, that, and, the, and he begins to reveal to us that God is prominent, that he is first, he is primary, that, that God is preeminent, that he is excellent, that he is majestic in his power, that he is magnificent in his person, that he is marvelous in his purposes, that our God is great, and it is all about him. And how good is that for us to remember that our God is good, and he is gracious towards us, and he is patient with us, but he is also majestic in his power. Like, we do not know power. I wish, and I know I use this illustration a lot, but I wish I could have been on the boat with the disciples when they thought they were going to die. And to experience that magnitude of God's power. And I think there are times when God, when he, when he, um, practices, whatever the word you want to use there, when, when, he, when, he, when his power is made manifest and we sit back and when we're just kind of like, no, oh, that was great. I mean, we literally have people, you are sitting right now with people in this sanctuary that should not be alive today. They should not be alive. I can give you three. Gene, Gene Bauman right here. Gene shouldn't be alive. Sue Cook should not be alive. Danny Clark, I walked into the emergency room and was told that he was pretty well going to die. These people should not be with us today, and yet here they sit living and breathing. Now you explain that to me and tell me that God's power is not majestic and how we can sit back and be like, oh, that's great. Mm, God's powerful. 
and we don't believe it. And we are witnesses to his power and majesty. And it's not just that. There's some of us this morning that God has worked incredible miracles in our lives. You know, I think about, man, I wasn't going to go here, but I'm going to because it is so good. It is so good. Psalm 107, flip open to me. I was reading in, the, some, in my time this morning prior to the service. I just want to thumb through some psalms, and I came across this psalm. And listen, this is some of you, and you're, the miracle in your life is no different than it is in the, in the dead walking today, right? So we got people that should be dead, and they're alive. We all should be dead spiritually, but yet we're here, and we've been made alive spiritually and raised from death to life in Christ Jesus. But listen, in Psalm 107, I love this, this, this psalm. He says in verse one, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Amen? God is good, right? Say it with me. God is good. God is good. If you don't believe that, get in the book and look. He is good. Think back on your life and you will see times that God is good. Now, for his steadfast love endures forever. Melissa alluded to that this morning when she was reading her text. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. What's that mean? Let the saved be telling people that God is good. Let his praise be on our lips. How's life? It's good. And don't just say it's good. Tell them why it's good. It's good because God is good. Because you know what? That's a startling truth to people who thinks we serve an angry God who sits in heaven with a cosmic pea shooter waiting on us to mess up so he can strike us down. But nowhere in scripture do we see that. Now do we see that God rebukes and disciplines his wayward children? Yes. But we do not see an image of a mad or sad God who sits just waiting on someone to smite. Instead we see Verses like John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son, that anyone and everyone who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's good. Then we get to verse 17, and he says this. He says, God didn't send his son. His son didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be what? Saved. That's why Jesus came. Now, the condemnation, the conviction is our own doing. We sin, and so the conviction and the condemnation, that's on us. But the redemption and the salvation is wholly on Christ Jesus. And so life may be good for you. And if it is, and someone says, hey, how's things going? You say good. It's good because God is good, and God has been good to me. And you know what? You may be here this morning. we got people all over this church right now battling illnesses. Some are facing an unknown diagnosis. Some have been going to doctors for over a year trying to figure out what in the world was even wrong. It doesn't doesn't matter what condition we find ourselves in. God is still good. Amen? Amen? And sometimes it's just that frame of mind and developing that frame of mind in ourselves. That God is good. God is good when life is good. God is good when life isn't so good. But God is good. Let's keep reading here. Because I want to make a point here. You know, maybe you aren't, maybe you haven't been miraculously healed, but some of these words are, are, are prone to us. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, verse 2, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Look at verse 4. Some wandered, hungry and thirsty. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Verse 6. So they're hungry, they're wandering in a desert with no, no home. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he did what? 
Look at verse six. They cried to the Lord in their, in their trouble, and he delivered them. That's good, right? That's good. He led them by a straight way. Look down at verse 10. Some sat in darkness. Some of you, that described your life before you came to a saving faith in Christ Jesus. You are sitting in darkness. It may have been the darkness of a depression. It may have been the darkness of anxiety. It may have just been that you were in a dark place because life was not going the way that you wanted it to go, but you were sitting in darkness. Look what, let's continue reading there. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. It tells that there are some who rebelled against the words of God. They spurned the counsel of the Most High. That'll certainly lead us to sitting in darkness, to not obey what God's word has to say. Why? Because we weren't intended or created to live that way. So we may find ourselves off the beaten track and we find ourselves in a dark place. But look, verse 13, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he what? Delivered them. He delivered them. Let's keep reading. He brought them up out of the darkness. In verse 14, in the shadow of death, he burst their bonds apart. Like that's good. Look at verse 17. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And because of their iniquities, suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, so they're sick. They cried to the Lord, and he, guess what? (laughs) He delivers them too. He sends out his word, and he heals them, and he delivers them. Time and time again in this chapter, we see people that are suffering in various kinds of affliction, and God delivers them. And it's the same way with us. We're in affliction. We cry out to God. He delivers us. We are sick. We, we cry out to God. He delivers us. We find ourselves in darkness. We cry out to God. He delivers us. We find ourselves in sin. We cry out to God. He delivers us. He is good. And everything he does in our life, and it may be to steer us to a certain end point. But whatever it may be, he is good in what he is doing, and he is just in what he is doing, and he is right in what he is doing. And he is preeminent, and he, is, and he knows exactly. So Elihu gets to some good points. He, he, he makes some good facts and he tells Job some truth and he's expanding his knowledge and, 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 his, and his thinking about God. And so we take a major step toward maturity when we finally realize, uh, going back to the point that he's making in these chapters, that it's not about us and our significance. God does not exist to just make us happy. That there is something much greater, that it's all about God's magnificence. It's all about his holiness. What is Psalm 107 about? It is about a God who rescues his people and the greatness of that God. Not that his people are, have been redeemed, but that he is the one who does the redeeming, that he is the one who does the delivering. It's all about his holiness and his greatness and his glory, that God is amazing. That he's not a God that we just, that, we, that we're kind of like, Hmm. Yeah. God's great. God's great, right? Amen. Like that's something that should elicit some excitement in us. That he is awesome and amazing and he does things that nobody else can do and he does them all the time. Sometimes we just need our eyes open to what maybe God's communicating, like Elihu tells Job, maybe God's communicating with us, and we're just not picking up the message because we're not looking in the right places. You may be here this morning, and you just need to know, have some encouragement. Like, you just need to know God sees you. 
And he may be showing you that he sees you by seeing all these other people around you and delivering them out of whatever they're struggling with. But we are stuck in our ash heap, just like Job is. And we're not looking around what God's doing elsewhere. We're just focused on our own suffering. We're just focused on what's wrong in my life instead of looking how God may be answering our prayers in the lives of other people. Without Christ, without the Lord, there is no righteousness, there's no holiness, there's no promise of forgiveness, there's no source of absolute truth, there's no reason to endure, there's no hope beyond the grave, there's nothing without him. And Elihu turns Job's attention to this awesome God. Matter of fact, look at verse, uh, in chapter 37, look at verses 14 through 18. He says, and, and I don't know how he says it, it's hard to, 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 if we look at the text and think about it, but I can almost hear him winding down and maybe his anger and that aggressiveness is gone. And he says, Job, listen to me. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? Do you know the balancings of the, of the clouds and the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Yet who, you whose garments are hot when the earth is still because of the south wind, can you, like him, Job, spread out the skies hard as a cast metal mirror? Teach us, and, then, and skip to look at verse 22. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. So he kind of wraps that up with that. Nothing compares to God. And let us never forget that. Let us never forget there's nothing, 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 nothing that compares to our God. And so if we summed up all of Elihu's message, here's what it'd be. Job, God is here. Our awesome God, this glorious, magnificent, all-powerful, all-knowing, righteous, holy, loving, patient, steadfast God, he is here, and he is so big, Job. He's big, and he sees you, and he isn't always silent, and when he speaks, there is no, no word, no voice like his. I want to close with a with a simple with just a simple question. How big is your God? How big is your God? Is he big enough to intervene? Is he big enough to be trusted? Is he big enough to be held in awe and ultimate respect? Is he big enough to replace or erase your worries and replace them with peace? You see, this morning, it does not matter what you are encountering in life. Our God is big enough. He is as big as he needs to be. And he is much bigger than we often give him credit for being. And let me reassure you this morning that whatever you are going through, God sees you. He sees you. Yeah, he sees the people around us. But he sees you. And don't believe the lie 
that God is busier with much bigger things than to be concerned with what's going on in your life because that's not true. That he is big and he is concerned. What, what does 1 Peter chapter 5 tell us? 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 6 because it fits with verse 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty, the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you. But what's he say in verse 7? Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How big is your God? You see, when your God's too small, your problems are magnified and you retreat in fear and insecurity. But when your God is great, your problems pale in comparison to how awesome God is. Would you stand with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and, and I'll be the first to confess this morning that there are times that I don't think of you as, as being big enough. There are times when I lie awake at night and I worry about the things that, 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 that all people worry about. There are times when I worry that maybe my faith is, or my, my steps have outreached my faith. There are times that I think that maybe this isn't what needs to be done. There are times that, I, that I, I'm just fearful about what you are calling me to do and that I know I need to do it, but I just don't. But God, I pray that you would help me to, to look around, to expand my view outside of just me and, and be able to see your greatness and what you're doing in the lives of other people in the marriages that you're healing, in the hearts that you are mending, in the lives that you are, are, are binding together. Lord, in, the, in, the, in the, just the mighty works that you do on a daily basis, in, in the simple protections that you offer us when we get into our cars and safely arrive at our destinations, God, you do care for us. And God, you do protectively watch over us. And God, there are times in our lives when we get wavered and you discipline us to bring us back to you because you know that's the best place for us. So Father, my prayer this morning is that God, we would have a big view of you. That God, we would have a big view of you. That we would see your greatness and your majesty. God, I pray if there's someone here today and, and maybe they can't claim some of the promises that because they haven't yet trusted in you to be their Lord and Savior. Maybe they can't look back on a time and say, I know for certain I was saved here. If they can't, they don't know for certain this morning. I pray today that, God, you would give them that assurance, Lord, that today they would know that on June the 3rd of 2018, I received Christ to be my Lord and Savior. My sins have been forgiven. My heart has been made new that I'm no longer what I was, but I am now a new creation because of your wonderful work on the cross and because of your resurrection from the dead. And Father, maybe there's some here today that maybe, as we read in the psalm, that maybe they feel today that they are just sitting in darkness. And maybe it's because, as the psalmist said, that it's because they've just gone astray. Like, God, maybe they can look back on a time and say, I know I was saved. Man, that was a long time ago, and I've fallen, and I'm, I'm not anywhere near where I was then. God, I pray today that your greatness would be made known to them, that all these things in their life have steered them to them being here this morning and having an opportunity to respond to you in faith. That God, if you call on, on, that if they will just call on your name, you'll deliver them.
And so, Father, I pray that you would deliver in big ways today. God, I know that we have some here this morning that are burdened. I know there are some here today who are sick. There are some here today who doctors think are sick but aren't entirely sure. God, there are some here today that it has no need of the physical, but God, it is emotional or it is spiritual or it is mental in nature. And God, you can deliver them as well. And so, Father, I pray today if that today our altars would just be full of people coming to the victory that's in Christ Jesus. And it would not be just those who are coming for salvation, but it'd be those that are coming for maybe recommitment, that it would be those that are coming for healing, those that are coming, God, because their burden are great and their worries are great and they want their worries to be replaced by a big God who brings peace. God, that it would be filled with people who just say, God, you are good, and I just want to thank you for that goodness today. But God, however you are calling us to respond, I just pray that we would respond as you're you're moving on our hearts to do. For it's in Christ's name, and it is for your glory alone that we ask all these things. Amen.